Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. I want to tell you about a new podcast called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, a doer, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to get a peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you should check it out. The first episode features conversations with presidents and CEOs from organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, Feeding America, and more. And you can expect new episodes about things like corporate culture in the 21st century and innovative approaches to business with great insight from some of the brightest minds in the nation. Listen and subscribe to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast Conversations that Satisfy Your Curious Mind. Chris Stemp here. Okay, okay, are you ready? This is the first time ever, I think, ever, that I am guaranteeing you will love this episode. That's just because I think I know all of you so well. I feel like we're this community and we think very similarly and we enjoy the same things. I'll tell you, I got hooked on our guest this week by listening to his TED Talk. And I highly recommend, you know, listen to the interview and and then go check out his TED Talk and also get his book. But the way he breaks down a topic as difficult as mental and emotional health into such easily understandable yet intriguing concepts is just phenomenal. Our guest this week is Dr. Guy Winch. That's G-U-Y. W-I-N-C-H. But, 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 before we get into more about our guest in this episode and all the great things we're going to be talking about, I have another massive announcement, okay? So hopefully you're somewhere where you can take out a pen or a cell phone or type this down. I'm in the process of putting together a new podcast, and this idea does not exist. There is not a podcast out there, as far as I know, that does what I want to do here. It will resonate so deeply with this audience and it will help tens of thousands of people around the world. For right now, I'm just going to say that this new podcast is going to be all about coaching. It's about people who have kind of been interested in coaching, know that it's out there, you know, life coach, business coach, relationship coach, health coach, all these coaches, and have maybe never dipped their toes in the water, even though they know they could probably use it. So for example, if you listen to Heather Gray or Doug Hench or Ann Lair or any of the folks we've had on that are coaches and said, wow, you know what? I really like that. This new podcast will be for you. So I'm in the market research stage of this, and I really need your feedback. If you're interested in coaching at all, if you're interested 
in the idea of it, if you've ever thought about it, I need you to fill out this five question survey. Okay, are you ready? Here is the URL. So go to this survey right away. It takes, it'll take three minutes and fill it out. The link is surveymonkey.com slash r slash smart people. Okay, so I'm going to do it again. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash smart people. I'm also going to be sending this out via our newsletter relatively soon within the next couple of weeks. But just just write this down. Head on over there now. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash smart people. And take the quick survey. It'll help me. And also, those of you that take the survey will be first in line to benefit from this podcast. There's actually a free service, like legit free, no sales pitch. There's nothing selling here. The same way I haven't sold you anything in seven years. I mean, other than our sponsors. But, you know, that's not what we're here to do. This new podcast is going to be amazing, but I need you and I need your feedback and help. So if you head on over there, we can make it happen. And if you take the survey, you will be first in line to benefit. And I'm going to pick some of you at random to send some free books. I've got about 200 free books from guests we've interviewed in the past. They're sitting here on my bookshelf and I'll send them to you just as a thanks. So again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash smart people. Okay. Now that we've got that over with, let me get back to our amazing guest and episode this week. We are talking with Dr. Guy Winch. Let me tell you a little bit more about Guy. So Guy is a licensed psychologist. He's an author and a keynote speaker, and his books have been translated into 21 languages. His most recent book, which we are discussing on this show, is called Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. He also has another book called The Squeaky Wheel, which was published in 2011, and his TED Talk titled why we all need to practice emotional first aid has been viewed over 4 million times. It's also rated among the top five most inspiring talks on TED.com. And of course, you know he's smart because he's on the show, right? But he received his doctorate in clinical psychology from NYU and his postdoc fellowship at NYU Medical Center. And trust me, when you listen to this episode, you'll know. I mean, the guy knows his stuff and You'll see yourself. I promise you'll see yourself in some of the things we discuss. And I also can't recommend his book enough, Emotional First Aid. I read it. I'm not going to lie. I mean, look, life's tough at different times. In the episode, I mentioned something that, you know, is, is personal to me and which brought me into reading his book and watching his TED Talk. But basically, we all need this Emotional First Aid kit. I'm going to stop talking so we can get into this. Don't forget, I could really use your help on that survey, and there's many good things that will come for you and for us if you go ahead and take it. Now I'm going to turn it over to a great guy, Guy Winch, as he talks about emotional first aid and how we can heal our everyday wounds. Enjoy. Well, Guy, first, I have to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. It's my pleasure. So I mentioned to you when I reached out to you, I found you via your TED Talk. And then I went on to read your book and read a lot of your articles. I think your message is so incredibly timely, and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do that, let's learn about who you are, the man on the other end of this mic. So what do you do and how did you get there? Give us a brief overview. Ah, well, okay. I'm a psychologist, so I have a PhD in clinical psychology, which I got from New York University. Um, I uh, do three different things around that. Number one, I have a private practice here in New York City, which I've always maintained because I feel it's a, it kind of really grounds me and keeps me, um, uh, you know, in touch with, with, with what real issues are with people on a day-to-day. -day. And uh, I also write books and uh, articles, and I do uh, public speaking. So uh, all around this issue of psychology. So those are the things I do. In terms of how I got there, um, I think I always wanted to be a psychologist. People say to me, I used to talk about that or, or mention that that's what I wanted to be when I was even in high school. So 
It's probably a story to be told about why a high school kid wants to be a psychologist, but we'll get into that another time. Um, and uh, it's just an ambition I always had. So I always, it was one of those, I'm one of those people who always knew what he wanted and went for it without kind of, uh, uh, you know, taking all these scenic routes. That makes you one of the lucky few, I have to say. I I agree. I it's I'm very fortunate in that way. I do want to get back to, and we don't have to go into it too much, but you know, what motivated you to do that in your opinion? I mean, you said you knew you wanted to do it for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think it always starts with a certain curiosity about people and really about yourself as well. Why uh, are people the way they are? Why am I the way I am? But really to me, the main interest was about uh, dynamics in relationships and, and, you know, and I would see people even at a young age, I would recognize, oh, this person's not quite being honest with themselves. They're saying this, but really, I think they mean that. And I was always interested in, in uh, you know, that that level of the story we tell ourselves versus the story that's actually true. And and then I started to read a bit of psychology when I was in high school. And I'm like, oh, there's this whole kind of behind the scenes thing that happens in our brain. That's kind of interesting. So just a curiosity for me, it's almost like, uh, you know, somebody who likes to tinker and take things apart to see how they work. To me, that was, uh, you know, our mind and how we think. That's what I wanted to uh, tinker with, not, you know, in this uh, evil scientist way, but just in terms of understanding it. Sure. And, you know, you've dedicated your a majority of your life to this and studying these things and tinkering. And I wonder how far along do you think we are in understanding it? And also, do you ever get discouraged by the fact that we might know very little and therefore the things you're uncovering might not prove to be, I don't know, true or proven? Has that? Have you ever thought of those things? Other than all the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Psychology is a very young science. And so with the very young science, you kind of assume that, you know, theories are, this is what we know at the moment, we're going to find out more and, um, and change our minds about things going forward. But um, so here's how I deal with that. First of all, I th in terms of where we are, so I think that we are uh, in very initial stages. I think there's far, far more that we don't know than we do know. I think we are seeing a few dots. We're certainly not seeing enough dots to, you know, create a, a great outline and certainly not enough to fill that outline in. So I really think we're at these early stages. We, there are so many things we don't quite understand. I do think that we are um, finding a lot of that, that, we are creating a lot of data points that at some point somebody will be able to come along and tie all together in a way that will make everyone go, oh, uh, but I don't think we're there or, or, or uh, near getting there. Will that happen in my lifetime? Maybe, but I'm not expecting it to happen in the next 10 to 20 years, say. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. Now, how, how I deal with that is I, um, you know, I, I'm, my degree is a PhD. I, uh, I, I did research. It's a science degree, and I just keep reading the science. And as one idea falls out of favor and a new idea comes in and that gets validated and verified, and then I update my own thinking with that new information. And I think just as you are constantly getting updates to your uh, phones and, and, and gadgets, so yeah, that's how I feel. I'm constantly getting updates to what we know and trying to update my own understanding, not just of that specific uh, topic, but how it relates to the other things that I'm uh, thinking about or talking about. Hmm. And I welcome them uh, because usually these updates are illuminating and they're like, oh, that kind of makes more sense. So that explains something that wasn't clear or that contradicts something that I wasn't that comfortable with in the first place. And so um, to me, it's just a fascinating journey of reading the science and the areas that are relevant to me and being able to use that to um, update and to refine my own ideas and my own thinking about these things. Yeah, I love the analogy to like the smartphone. That makes me realize, okay, I think I could handle it that way because I don't think twice about those updates that come through. You know what I mean? Right. They're not that substantial. They tweak a little thing here, a little thing there. The basic functioning of the smartphone, the basic way you, you use it and interface with it are the same. And it's the same in these kinds of uh, uh, studies. One thing you mentioned is that oftentimes you feel people are attracted to this line of work or this area 
because not only curiosity about others, but curiosity about themselves. And I wholeheartedly agree with you in that when I started to get very curious about this, it was really to figure out what was going on in my own head. Do you feel that as a PhD in this area, having worked there, um, you've uncovered some of your own things? I mean, does it help work, you know, does it help you work through yourself or get to know yourself better? And do you feel you've achieved that at all? Well, yes. I mean, look, as part of the study, when you are uh, getting a PhD in clinical psychologist and studying to become a therapist, it's strongly encouraged that you enter your own therapy and kind of get your own house in order, which of course I did. Most people do. Um, but for me, what's really interesting is, the, and that's you know a number of years ago now, what, what I'm doing today and the work I'm doing today and the things I'm reading and writing about today are things that are very practical to all people. I don't write about obscure mental health illnesses or the rare thing that happens to one or two people. I write about, I write about common experiences we all have me included. And what I find interesting is that when I will then come across a new issue that I want to talk about and I'll research it and I'll formulate my ideas about it and I'll discuss it with my patients and try out certain things and then I'll find myself in that scenario, in that situation, I always feel a sense of duty to, well, you know, you really have to practice what you preach. So if this is what you think people need to do, this is what you should do. And I really try and use that to hold myself to a certain standard of, of, of practicing in terms of just emotional health, in terms of how I think and deal with things, because unfortunately, I know better than to just glibly go about doing the wrong thing. So even if it's very tempting to do the wrong thing, which is why so many people do the wrong thing, because it's actually terribly tempting, um, I try and prevent myself from doing it or catch myself when I've started. Uh, and that I find very uh, useful because it also brings me into touch with, wow, it's actually difficult to do the right thing. It's difficult mm. to contradict what your impulses are when you know that's the right thing to do when your impulses are strongly telling you to do the other thing. Wow. Okay. That's such a great lead in. And let me start here. Why is it that our brains and our bodies in all of their infinite wisdom have actually set us up to fail almost. I mean, like you said, we our impulses are to do the wrong thing. And although we'll get into those specifics, just from a general perspective, why can't they be to do the right thing? Because look, we evolved, um, our, our brain evolved to keep us from harm. So um, if you touch a hot stove as a child, it hurts. And then the next time you approach the hot stove, your mind makes you very anxious and very aware that, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is going to hurt, don't do it. And when it's a hot stove, that's terribly useful. But when it's things like trying to achieve a goal or wanting to go on a date and you just got rejected by the previous date or you just failed at your previous goal, your mind doesn't distinguish the dating situation from the hot stove. So it will tell you, no, that's not a good idea. Don't go on that date. Why don't you just stay off the app for a few months? Or if it's about a goal, your mind won't distinguish that, you know, yes, it might be difficult, but you want to achieve this goal. And since you failed it at last time, it'll just tell you, oh, you really can't do that. You're not good enough. You shouldn't do that. That'll just make you miserable. So it's because of that general setup that our mind will try to keep us away from doing the things that we really need to do in order to succeed and thrive and be happy. Uh, because it perceives them a lot of the times as things that hurt us in the past, so we should certainly stay away from them. Um, and that's when we need to learn to override it. Um, and also we're smart, so if the fear and the anxiety is to avoid the thing that causes us distress, well, you know, it could be an elevator would cause us distress, but if we stay away from elevators, A, we'll be pretty limited in, you know, where we go, and B, it'll just increase the anxiety. So we need to override these initial impulses, but they are what they are because they've evolved to keep us from physical dangers rather than from emotional ones. And it just, uh, you know, the, we, we're in a, some kind of snag when the two meet. Mm. It's so frustrating. And there was something you mentioned there, this idea of happiness, and that's, again, not where I want to go with this, but in all of your learning and your experience, have you come to any conclusion on what it is that makes people happy or what we're seeking that provides happiness? Yeah. And, and the bottom line uh, is uh, let's stop the whole happiness thing. Because um, happiness is a, um, is a relative term. When we look at uh, uh, lottery winners, 
you know, who win millions of dollars in the lottery, um, they're really happy um, for the first few weeks and months after they win the lottery. And if you look into them a year later, they're kind of back to the same level of happiness they had before because happiness is a relative jump from uh, where you are at the moment. So it's not the right term to use in this context. The right term to use is life satisfaction. How can you increase your life satisfaction? Because that's something you can do in an ongoing way. You can't be happy all the time. We're not built to be happy all the time. Uh, we can have you know, uh, spikes of it, but we can have a high level of life satisfaction all the time. And that's really the goal. Um, we can achieve you know, deep meaning and feel that our lives we're leaving are, uh, the, li the lives we're leading are meaningful and satisfying. That is something we can do, and that's what we should uh, strive to. So the happiness is just a notion or a label that's a little bit overused and misused in this context because it's not, nobody can be happy all the time. It's just not something that we can um, maintain. I love that. I love that. Okay, now we'll get into, hopefully, the things we can do to achieve that. And not okay. the happiness, but the the life uh, meaning and, and whatnot. Let me let the listeners in. So I, as they know, recently started a job where I travel a lot. I only work when I'm on the road. And it's typically I'll be there for one day at a time, maybe two. And fairly soon into my journey, I started getting this feeling. And I, I couldn't understand what it was. It, not something I had really experienced and. One of the things when a friend sent me your TED Talk that jumped, just literally jumped out at me, was the idea of loneliness. And the way you talked about loneliness not really being a physical thing, like you're not near people, but something else. And then we went through, you, you go through some other things, failure, rejection, rumination. So why I wanted you on the show was to, you only got 15 minutes in that TED Talk. But I want to know not only about these ideas, but also how to fix them and to help people listening fix them. So let's start with this kind of emotional first aid. How did you come to this at these seven, really these seven common psychological injuries? So uh, I was uh, finding that there was a lot of research um, on... Uh, very common experiences that we all have in life. You know, you mentioned some rejection, failure, loss, guilt, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I, and I said, I read the research. There was a lot of research that was actually um, had a lot of hints within it about what we might do to overcome uh, these experiences and how we might understand what's going on in our, in our minds, in our brains when we have them. And what struck me was that, wow, this is such useful information and absolutely no one knows it. It's, uh, it's in journals between psychology researchers, but written in this dense language. And so I started uh, distilling it into um, practical applications and I would try them out with my patients or with friends. I would say, hey, try this. Or did you know that when this happens, this is what's going on in your brain? And people responded to that really strongly, like, wow, that's really useful to understand why I'm, I'm feed, feed, feeding veteran. I want to use an example just from what you raised, loneliness. We tend to um, uh, associate loneliness with the um, you know, loner living in a cabin in the woods who uh, comes uh, down the mountain once a month to get supplies. Um, and that's what our association is, you know, the people who, who just are, are socially isolated. But loneliness is much more common in terms of its emotional disconnection. And you can feel emotionally disconnected even when you're surrounded by people. 60% of people who, uh, who admit to being lonely are actually married and have families. They're actually living with people the entire time. But they are feeling emotionally disconnected. And it's one of those things that happens to a lot of us in all kinds of circumstances that we gradually or not so gradually become emotionally disconnected. But because our, the, object, or the, the objective standard of our lives are that we seem to be around a lot of people, it never occurs to us that we're experiencing loneliness. And if we don't know that, we can't fix that um, and or address it. And we need to because loneliness has huge consequences for our health and our mental health and really even our longevity. 
Um, so it's it, it's one of those things that you know you need to recognize um, what it is, how it might be impacting you. And a lot of people give me the same feedback you just did about the TED talk. They there's a section in which I talk about my own experience of loneliness, and people will say to me, "I started crying when I saw that, but I don't know why." And I always say, "Well." perhaps because you're feeling lonely would be my immediate conclusion. Um, but that's the, but that's the thing. They just don't put their finger on. They would never have known that or identified that that that's what they're feeling. Um, but they're really connecting to the description of it. Um, and, uh, and there are things we can do about it. And so we need to understand what happens to us in these scenarios and what we can do to emerge from them. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. I'm so excited for this week's sponsor. We are bringing on board to the Smart People Podcast family, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. When I get home from work and I don't know what I'm going to cook, I absolutely dread it. I don't want to take the time and I think, oh, maybe I'll just go out and pick something up, but not anymore. Not with HelloFresh. Their food is delicious. It only takes about 30 minutes and requires minimal equipment. Anybody can do it and it is so much fun. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there is absolutely no food waste. And if you're worried about your diet, rest assured, HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free. They absolutely could not make it easier. I guess they could come to your house and make the food for you, but what fun would that be for you? HelloFresh has been absolutely amazing. Like I mentioned, I used to dread getting home from work to cook something, but with HelloFresh, they make it so easy, so fun, and so delicious. So listen up, Smart People Podcast listeners. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter SPP30 when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and enter the code SPP30 when you subscribe. Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat. Simple recipes you'll live to cook. HelloFresh. Get cooking. And now back to the episode. Well, let's pick, let's keep going with this idea of loneliness because it's one, I read an article about how new moms often feel lonely. And I know that oftentimes, if you travel, if you um, go to university, I mean, there's all these instances where I can imagine this happens, or if you have a secret or, or something like that. I'd imagine those are all the things. So first, tell us what it looks like or feels like. How does it manifest in in what you see? What's the things that we often do that are wrong? And eventually, maybe we can make our way to touching on how do we fix it? Right. By the way, that article about new moms, I think I wrote that article. You did. um, No, you did. That's why I brought it up. Um, But but it's it's another one of those things that you just don't expect in that scenario. But but here's the thing. When we we, uh, start to experience loneliness, a bunch of things happen to us physiologically and psychologically. Physiologically, uh, we immediately uh, go into a stressful mode where our body feels like it's under stress um, and our immune system uh, begins to function less um, effectively, literally immediately. Um, and so that, of course, has a consequence. We, we, will, we will feel stressed and, and run down uh, and out of sorts. But psychologically is the most damaging. Psychologically, what happens when we're lonely is we develop this perceptual distortion in which we become convinced that the people that should be caring about us the most don't care as much um, as they actually do. And the relationships we have are not as valuable as they actually are. So we perceive the spouse from whom we might feel disconnected as, hey, you know, we we come home, they don't ask us about how our day went, we're just having transactional conversations and sitting and watching TV in silence or each of us on our phones and our screens and, and it's because they don't care. 
Um, or we we think of the friend that hasn't called us in a month and go, wow, they really don't care about us. They haven't called in a month. And maybe that doesn't matter because, you know, how great was that friendship anyway? What we are not aware of is that those are distortions. So the friend that hasn't called you in a month, yet you haven't called them either. And they're not, not calling you. They just haven't spoken in a month. And if you were to approach them positively and say, hey, I haven't spoken to you. How are you? They'd be like, oh, great to hear from you. But when you're feeling lonely and you're feeling raw and you're feeling that, what you're likely to do is text them and go, hey, how come you haven't called me in a month? Which is going to make them defensive, which is going to make them come across as more remote, which is going to validate our fear that, ah, indeed, there's an issue there. Or if we say to our spouse, how come you never asked me how my day was? And you actually never asked them how their day was either. Again, it's going to set up this kind of reaction. So um, when we're lonely, we feel so besieged and so emotionally raw and so hesitant um, and fearful of rejection that we are likely to respond in these suspicious and hesitant ways that are actually going to create and draw the exact responses we don't want, which then becomes this vicious cycle. You know, I'll sometimes say to people, you have to, you know, if you need to, like people who immigrate, people whose friends moved away, people who they're single, but all their friends are coupled up and having kids, so they have no one to hang out with. So you have to make new friends then. You have to find a new, you know, cadre of people. And they'll, well, I went to the party, but no one spoke to me, as I knew they wouldn't. Yeah, well, because you parked yourself by the hummus and the vegetable dip with a scowl on your face. Of course, no one approached you. <laughs> So it, it's so when you're feeling lonely, you have to understand that it's going to make you feel certain ways which are not reflective of the reality, and you have to try and put yourself in a little in a different mindset and approach people in a positive and 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 uh, an inviting way, and that will probably verify or, or not verify that that will probably show you that no, these relationships are sound and they are important and people do care, and that's going to manifest when you approach them positively and warmly rather than suspiciously and hesitantly. You talk about this emotional first aid kit. I mean, that's what your book is, Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. And it's you relate it to kind of a, a physical health and, and mental health. So having a, a physical first aid kit, an emotional first aid kit, do you feel as if it's just as critical to be able to say, oh, I'm lonely, here are the steps, the actual actions I need to take. That's just as critical as, oh, I have a stuffed up nose. Here's the actual medicine I need to take. I think it's actually even more critical, to be honest with you, because we sustain physical injuries more often than we do. Uh, I mean, uh, emotional injuries rather more often than we do physical ones. You know, I mean, you'll get a cold once or twice a year and adults don't scrape their knees and get cuts and, you know, bruises as much as children do. But how often uh, do we feel rejected? You know, we feel rejected every time we reach out to our spouse or partner and they and they rebuff our sexual advances. We feel rejected when we see colleagues go to lunch uh, without us or when we hear our friend, our neighbors having a barbecue that we weren't invited to. And we fail each time we try a new endeavor or we, you know, we uh, uh, even it, you can see the failure experience. Some people are very irritable because they spent the entire day playing Candy Crush or whatever it is, and they keep getting stuck at this level, and they get very irritable by it because they keep failing at it, and it's actually impacting their mood. And we experience loneliness much more regularly than we think, and our self-esteem is not a constant, uh, uh, you know, uh, trait that is always stable. It's more, uh, it moves up and down on an hourly uh, basis. You know, we we wake up in the morning sometimes feeling great about ourselves and sometimes feeling bad about ourselves. It's like having a good and bad hair day. Uh, I don't have enough hair to have good hair days, <laughs> but I did. Um, and so, you know, there are all these things which are so common and so frequent. Guilt, for example. How often do we feel guilty in these small measures? And do we know when in, you know, it's a useful signal versus when it's not? Um, so to my mind, having this first aid kit, and it's specifically a first aid kit because when you get a cut or a scrape or a cold or a sprain, you don't run to the doctor. You don't need to. You can take care of that at home. And this is the idea with, with the book and, and, and the articles I write and the speaking I do. The idea is here are tools so you can take care of it at home. So rather than rush to see a therapist, which most people can't do because of geography or, or cost, um, yeah, here are steps you can take. And these steps will not only make you feel better sooner – uh, they're not magic. They can't completely make you feel better immediately, but they'll make you feel better sooner. And they'll also prevent things from escalating and from really becoming more of a problem uh, that can lead to real mental health problems later on. 
Yeah. And that's what kind of hooked me on this is really not knowing. I realized as you, again, did your TED Talk 15 minutes, I was like, yes, everybody deals with these. I deal with these. And then I go on, well, guy, wait, how do we fix it? And so that's when I got your book and reached out to you. And so I'm hoping as we touch on these, people will kind of understand and then learn more. So let's pick another one. Let's pick something like uh, rumination, I think is an interesting one. Why is rumination? And first, I guess I'll have you define it instead of myself, but why is that something we even deal with? It seems like such an unnecessary part of being human. Uh Perhaps uh, it, you know you might think of it that way. Rumination is uh, it, it's the word for brooding or for stewing. It actually means to chew over. It comes from uh, what cows, how cows digest. When cows are, you know, they they chew, they swallow, then they regurgitate the food up again, chew it again, swallow again. I mean, it's slightly disgusting for cows, but works for them. It's not good for us as people. For us, that means that when there's something that really gets stuck that we just can't stop stewing about the fight we had with a with a friend that we can't stop thinking about our boss chewing us out in a meeting in front of people um, a breakup that happened something upsetting or distressing or a thought that we just can't get out of our minds and people can stew about these things i'm sure you you know everyone all the listeners have uh, people they know or they themselves that they they broke up from someone and two months later the person's still talking about can you believe when they said to me da, 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 da. and you're like wow it's been two months and you're still thinking about that in that same way now there is a difference uh, i mean rumination is a form of self-reflection there is a difference between self-reflecting in ways that are adaptive and self-reflecting in ways that are maladaptive. Adaptive self-reflection involves problem-solving. It involves trying to get a better understanding of something, uh, seeing a new perspective, finding solutions. Uh, that's an adaptive way of thinking. And usually when we do that kind of self-reflection, then we'll come up with these solutions, we'll get a new perspective, we'll figure out how to handle things, and that will ease the internal tension we feel about this issue. When we're ruminating, it means that something went awry in that process. And rather than, you know, going through it, figuring it out and letting it go, we're going through it, we're just going through it, we're not letting it go, we're going through it again, we're going through it again, we're going through it again. We just keep rethinking it over and over and over again. We've long passed the point at which we're trying to extract new information. We might kid ourselves into saying that's what we're trying to do, but really we're just going through it again. And the problem with that is that each time you tend to think of something upsetting, um, you're going to get upset. You know, if you, uh, if any of the listeners sit, thinks back to the time they broke a limb or had a really bad toothache, one thing I can assure you is your limb will not hurt as a result. Your tooth will not hurt by that evoking that memory. But if you think back in detail about a time that you were really upset, you're going to start feeling upset, even if you were in a fine mood. So, by the way, don't do that right now. That's not a great idea. <laughs> But that is the, the, the vulnerability we have psychologically. So by each time, by rumination, you are just constantly making yourself upset and distressed over and over and over again. And that can easily become a habit. And people can really then start just ruminating about all the upsetting and aggravating and annoying and distressing things that have happened, might happen to them. And then their whole worldview starts to become really dominated by this real negative, depressing uh, a kind of experience. They start to think of themselves as 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 victims because all these things are happening to them. They, and and it's a habit that when when it can really cost us because actually it can predispose us to things like cardiovascular disease because of all the stress we're putting us through. It predisposes us to eating disorders, substance abuse, alcoholism, because that's often how we manage difficult emotions with food, with alcohol, with substances, and it can really focus us uh, so much on stewing that it can increase this passivity uh, where our actual problem-solving abilities, our abilities to think through something productively and figure out solutions, becomes diminished in favor of just reliving the, the outrage. Um, and you all know these people who are just reliving one outrage after another on a regular basis. They're stuck in that loop, and it's terrible for them. But their insides are telling them really strongly, oh, this is very important to think about. Well, but if it's the 10th time you've thought about it, it's not that important because you're not being productive anymore. So you have to recognize, just when, as you have to recognize when you're lonely, you have to recognize when you're stuck in a ruminative loop and understand how dangerous it is and how uh, important it is to break out of it. 
you mentioned this word important and rumination can feel important very much so it it almost that's why i like how you use that adaptive versus maladaptive it feels like oftentimes ruminating is simply problem solving so if i for example can i can't think anything off the top of my head but it happens all the time and i'll go but if i think through this hard enough i can make it go smoothly avoid the problems uh you know fix it how do you differentiate between doing that and doing it too often? Um, because when you're thinking through it in a problem-solving way, um, then you're actually asking yourself questions about how can I avoid this next time? What can I do to see this from a different point of view? What can I learn here that I haven't figured out before? You're actually asking, you're, you're, you're challenging yourself with questions that you really try need to answer. But if you're asking yourself these same questions over and over and you haven't been able to answer them, why do you think you're going to answer them now if you haven't been able to in the first five times you thought about it? Mm. If you're thinking about it the same way, you're not going to come up with any new answers. It's not just about squinting and, you know, and grunting and trying again. It's about having a different approach. It's about really trying to think about it differently. Maybe you need to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and see things from their point of view. Maybe you need to put yourself you know, in a different, what if I had done this in a different point in my life? How would I have thought of it differently? You can try different exercises to see if there's any new information to be extracted there. But the thing, we tend to ruminate not just about problems because then we do try and solve them. We tend to ruminate about upsetting events in our past or the ones we see might be happening you know, in the future, mostly ones that have happened in the past. And, and what happens there is we're really just reliving the negative experience, like, wow, I can't believe that happened and you relive it again. Or, oh, can you just, it's just unbelievable how this person did this to me. Or like, they just sat there and said, but what did they mean when they said, I don't want to see you again? Like, that, that they don't want to see you again. There's, there's no, you can't, you know, you're not an archaeologist. There's not 10 layers deep there to be, to be found. You know, you don't have to analyze every nuance of what they did and said to understand how they really meant it. The fact is, they don't want to see you again. It has to be accepted. Uh, there's no good in getting stuck on that. And again, if you're having the same thought for the third, fourth, fifth time, let alone the 10th or the 50th, and no, nothing new is coming of it, um, then you're in a loop that's really just harming you. As I listen and listening to your TED Talk, you strike me as kind of a no-nonsense guy. Here's what's going on. Here's what's, you know, I see. Here's the prescription for it, essentially, mental prescription. Do you find that that style is like, do you use that same style with patients? Is that the one that people kind of need to hear is, hey, here's what's going on. Here's how we fix it. That's it. Or what do you think? Well, there? okay, not exactly. Because when, you know, we're talking about generalities. If you yeah. um, gave me a specific situation, um, as patients do, they don't, they talk about specific things that happen. Mm -hmm. There's a layer that happens before I get into any of that. And that layer is a layer of empathy and emotional validation, which is hugely important. So that layer is me saying, wow, that sounds really, really rough. I can certainly understand why that would be incredibly upsetting. And here's indeed why I think it would have been upsetting because this happened and this happened. So of course you responded in that way. Of mm -hmm. course you felt the way you did. Of course, if you think so-and-so doesn't really care about you, um, it would be terribly hurtful. And of course you would be hesitant about reaching out because blah, 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 blah. I, I always start with emotional validation, with empathy, because people need to really need to hear that their feelings are not, you know, are, are valid, that this is what they're feeling. They're not crazy for feeling it. Um, it's, it's, what, it's how they're feeling. So they need to know that, that it's okay you're feeling this way. But after that goes, and if it's a problem, but here's what you need to know about why you're feeling that way. And here's what you need to know about what you can do to change it. Mm. Um, and, and that's an important combination because just the empathy just the emotional validation, which a lot of therapists do, like a lot of therapists, it's like, oh my goodness, poor you. The poor you is slightly damaging because it, it almost validates victimhood and it validates passivity. It almost has the subtext of, well, there's nothing much you can do about it, so poor you is the best I can offer. And that's not my approach. My approach is poor you because that sucks. And that really is upsetting. But after the poor you, and once the poor you was sunk in a bit, now let's look at what we can do about it because it's not necessary for you to stay poor you. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you've ever found yourself daydreaming during the workday or spending countless hours on small tasks, try NutroBoost. NutroBoost is a top-rated supplement made from nootropics, 
Cognitive enhancing compounds that when stacked in the right combination give some of Silicon Valley's best coders and business people their extra edge. They are 100% safe and in this case made from natural and potent cognitive enhancers that will significantly improve your focus, concentration, and memory. So for all you hustlers, strivers, and thrivers, anyone looking to get the most out of their lives, count on NutraBoost to increase your productivity and give you the competitive edge needed to conquer any challenge. That way, you can have more time in the day to enjoy the important things in life. For a limited time, they're offering a free 30-day supply. That's a $60 value, and all you'll have to pay is less than $5 for shipping. Head to trynutroboost.com slash smart. That's T-R-Y-N-O-O-T-R-O-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash S-M-A-R-T to claim your free trial now while supplies last and before this offer expires. That's trynutroboost.com slash smart. And one more time, T-R-Y-N-O-O-T-R-O-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Maybe that relates to one question I wanted to ask you, which I just, it was right off the bat in your book and I found interesting is you said, oftentimes we, the advice we get is, oh, go talk to a friend, go talk to a family member, a loved one, somebody trusted. And you kind of say, but these are the kinds of advice that don't really work. They don't always uh, fill up our emotional first aid kit. But then you don't go much more into it right there on why. And so I wanted to ask you, for those that probably understand this and have been there, what is it about simply talking to a loved one that isn't helping? So, for example, if you're upset about a fight you had um, with a cousin and you spoke to 10 family members about that fight, um, let's say you had 10 family members to speak with about that fight. Uh, not all of us do, but let's say you did. Um, how many of those would be purely um, emotionally validating, sympathetic on your side? How many of those would listen to you go on for 20 minutes about how upset you are and go, wow, bummer? And really often not much beyond that. Mm. How many of those would say to you, well, you know, it's funny because you did something similar with me that I was upset about and suddenly make it about them? Mm. Um, and how many of those would actually have wise words of uh, wisdom? So the idea is this: even this idea of of just venting in general, um, it really is only a successful gambit if we get emotional validation. If if it's you know if somebody validates our feelings, and and most people don't know how to do that very well. Um, and so I, I always say when you're going and you're asking for advice give a lot of thought to who you're asking because everyone has their own agendas and their own filters. Um, and if you're asking for career advice from a colleague who might see you as a competitor, they're not the right person because they're not going to be entirely unbiased. And, you know, and if you're asking for, you know, uh, you know, for your uh, parents about whether you should take this amazing job but it's in a, you know, a different city, they're not going to be that, that unbiased either. Uh, and if you're asking for a friend about what you should do with your girlfriend when that friend has never had a successful relationship, maybe not the best address either. So it's actually not that simple to find the right people to give you the right counsel or the right um, uh, advice or the right comfort, uh, on, you know, in, in the best of times. But part of what I also discuss in the book is that all these things that we kind of need, I always start in each chapter, I start by explaining, this is what you need to understand about what's going on in your head. Mm. Because if, unless you understand what's going on in your head, it'll be harder to do something about it. You need to understand why you're feeling the way you do, why you're thinking the way you do. There's a reason for it. And some of those thoughts are valid and some are not. But unless you understand why you might have invalid thoughts or why your mind might be misleading you, it'll be very hard to override it. And that's knowledge most people don't have. So they're going to be limited as well. I, I do think it's valuable to find people who can be emotionally validating, supportive, perhaps give advice. And there are plenty of good advice givers out there. Um, but if you approach 10 people, the, 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 the really useful ones will be, you know, a, a, a minority probably rather than a majority of the responses you get. Absolutely. And I think the example you gave is perfect. And even people are dealing with their own issues. So 
I mean, how much of that comes into the conversation as well? I want to ask you, and this might be a tough question to ask because, or a tough question to answer because it's not, again, specific as we are speaking in generalities, but in the same way that every first aid kit we buy comes with similar things in it, right? You have the band-aids, maybe the neosporin, the alcohol wipes, whatever it is. Do you have any, you know, must-haves in the emotional first aid kit? <laughs> Are you asking me to choose now? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, look, people should go through the book, obviously. But, I, you know, for those that are going, okay, I'll get there. But what are the three that I could work on right now, maybe? So, look, I mean, the, what I actually say in the book is that you really need to take, like, you know, in each chapter, there are these, uh, you know, I talk about the things that go wrong. And then here are three or four uh, potential um, first aid techniques you can apply. The idea is, and I say this in the book, you know, when I have a headache, um, I can go to the pharmacy and there are probably going to be five to seven uh, pain relievers I could use. I don't try five or seven because I've tried them all and I know which one tends to work for me. So I figured that out and that's the only one I get now. And you need to do the same thing with this first aid kit. You actually need to try uh, the different approaches and see which one is the one you're most likely to use and is most effective for you. And then you develop your own personalized version of that kit. And it's based on if you're in the dating world, you probably need to have uh, a few techniques to deal with rejection under your belt. If you have a lot of travel in your work, you need to know how to address issues of loneliness. If you're a high school student, a college student, or somebody who's up and coming in their career, you probably need to have some uh, tools in order to deal with things like failure. If you have uh, uh, Jewish or Catholic parents, you might need some tools to deal with guilt. I'm not generalizing, but I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> That's unfair, but you know what I mean. Uh, oh, yeah. So, uh, so I'm, it's based on your circumstance, on who you are, uh, on what your life is about, where your life is, and what you're encountering most often. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's why I'm saying I give people an array of tools. I, my goal is try the ones out, uh, see what works for you, keep that one in your kit, use that. Yeah, I love the analogy. It keeps coming back and keeps making a lot of sense. At what point do people kind of look in their emotional first aid kit, no matter how robust it is, and say, you know what, it's time to go to the doctor. I mean, the same way for a broken arm, we don't just put a Band-Aid on it. How do people know when to seek out someone like yourself? And do you have advice on how to do that even? I mean, as you mentioned, cost, being cost prohibitive and then uh, the wide range. I was just wondering when you advise people to go and then how they should go about it. So first of all, you know, in the book, at the end of every chapter, I end every chapter with a segment called when to seek the help of a mental health professional, just mm -hmm. to kind of distinguish when somebody should actually go. But in general, the guidelines are the following. Um, if you've tried the techniques in the chapter and you're not getting better and or you're getting worse, maybe that's the time you need to seek um, the help of a mental health professional. Um, so, for example, if you dated somebody for three years and they broke up with you and you feel rejected and two weeks later you're not feeling better, you don't need to rush to see a professional. It's going to take more than a couple of weeks to get over a three-year relationship perhaps. But if four months later you're still hesitant to go out on any dates, you still can't get over it, it's hurting almost as much as it did on day one, yeah, you need to maybe you – might, you might be getting stuck. Now, most of us um, – like with physical injuries, it's not a day-to-day -day thing, but you want to see an overall trend toward improvement. Improvement being less emotional pain, a return to your previous level of uh, functioning and emotional uh, uh, levels, wherever those were, uh, feeling a little bit more hopeful. Um, so you want to see general trends of improvement. If the general trend is not happening or it's trending downward, you're feeling more isolate, isolated, you're feeling more hesitant, or you, you, know, you didn't get the promotion you wanted and you're feeling more and more and more discouraged about the job and it's harder and harder for you to, to um, you know, gather the motivation to, to perform adequately in your job, um, then yeah, maybe you need to get help. Now, getting help is tricky. Like I said, it's expensive. It's not always available. People are in geographic locations. They're not going to drive 60 miles uh, there and back, it becomes a half a day ordeal to go see a therapist. It's ridiculous. Right. But there are uh, therapists that will offer, um, you know, phone consultations or Skype consultations. There are um, all kinds of um, apps that people are using for meditation, for anxiety, if they take them seriously. 
Um, uh, I have an app that's going to be coming out later on uh, in the year uh, that people can find on my website. I don't want to talk about it too much right now, but um, there are, you know, some tools people can use. Um, but here's where you really need to take it seriously. Certainly, if you really feel like harming yourself or anyone else, that's the, the always the standard to immediately sure. go to an emergency room. But if you're really um, feeling that you're, you know, it's starting to be more of a depression rather than just feeling upset. Depression meaning it's not just that you're sad about something, you're sad about everything. It's not just this one thing that you feel demoralized about. You feel demoralized about everything. Depression is not a stroke. It's a wide, broad, gray veil that falls over us and makes us feel like nothing is worthwhile. And if that's been going on for two or three weeks, yes, you absolutely should see someone. Mm. Um, and by the way, if you can't find a therapist, go see your, your primary care physician because they can often help you with that even if it's medicationally, but they can evaluate it perhaps, you know, at least. If your anxiety is such that, you know, you are literally withdrawing further and further and further, that, you know, that you're literally, uh, you know, you're, you're getting more hesitant to leave the house or you're getting more socially anxious and so you're just avoiding one social engagement after the other to the point where you're really becoming housebound other than the things you absolutely must do, well, that's not a long-term gambit and if it's getting worse, don't, you know, A, don't let it get there, and B, when, if it's there, do something about it because social anxiety is treatable. And uh, it might feel like, you know, people will just judge you, but no, that's social anxiety. The feeling of being judged um, can be modified. And so do something about it. So, um, you know, when it's interfering with your functioning, when it's interfering with your life satisfaction, when it's interfering with your ability to move forward, and you've tried these other things, go get help. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. And I know you're busy with all the things you do. And although we did get into it some, I know that we're leaving listeners with more to ask. So that's why your book is out there. And I have to admit, again, when I heard your TED Talk, I was like, he better have a book on this or else I don't know what I don't know where to learn. So I guess that's where right. that's where books are this beautiful thing. Well, one thing I want to quickly say about the book, the book is actually in 22 languages. Um, which to me means one, two things. Okay, for, first, I have a good agent. But secondly, <laughs> it means that there's something that these experiences are pan-cultural. Um, it, it's, these are not an American experience. These experiences and the things I'm talking about, loneliness, rejection, failure, how you respond, is something people feel no matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what culture, uh, they are in collectivist cultures, individualistic cultures, whatever they are. You know, it's in it's in Russian, it's in Chinese, it's in Japanese, it's in Arabic, it's in Turkish, it's in every, you know, it's in many, many, many languages. And so, the point is that um, it's something that that really works for people because it's you know we have this common emotional DNA. You know how we respond is all the same. And so, one thing the book will teach you is not just how you respond but how others are responding as well, whether they admit that to you or not, whether they recognize it or not. So it's actually a useful tool in understanding others as well as in understanding yourself. Well, Guy, again, thanks so much. The book is Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts. We will link to it, of course, on smartpeoplepodcast.com. But I wanted to give you a chance. I mean, you write a lot of places. Tell us where, I mean, if for people on these issues, which everyone has them, after the book, of course, what other resources do you recommend, yours and perhaps others included? So, first of all, I also write a blog for Psychology Today called the Squeaky Wheel blog, which in which they can find hundreds of articles I've written already uh, that drill down into these topics, that get into nuances and talk about other things as well. Um, and so they can find it there if they're having trouble finding it. If they just go to guywench.com, my website, they can find links to those articles or to that website um, in in my uh, in my website. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of articles written um, by people who have books out. And so my recommendation is rather than just go and get the book, find the articles the person has written. If the articles make sense to you, if the articles are something that make you feel like, oh, I want to learn more about this, then consider getting the book. You know, for those who have, you know, Kindles, you can download samples of books. It's always a great way to, you know, just see if this is something that speaks to you. Um, but I think books like therapists, you need to find the one that 
speaks to you, that actually mm-hmm. um, gives the message that works for you, because there are many messages out there, and I'm not saying mine is going to be right for everyone, uh, and I'm not saying that everyone else's is right for everyone. So find the one that feels like, oh, this makes sense for me, and and pursue that. Absolutely. Guy, your wisdom is everything I hoped it would be. I really appreciate the time uh, you took. It has been my pleasure, and thank you so much for all your wonderful questions. Thank you. Have a great week. But thanks. Take all care. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Guy Winch. His book, Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. As always, all purchases you make on there come to no extra cost to you because a nice little kickback to help support the show. And if you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, just head over to iTunes and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. We greatly appreciate it, so thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do so. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Don't forget to take the survey that Chris mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. It's located at surveymonkey.com slash r slash smart people. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to sign up for the newsletter. We've got some great guests coming up in the weeks to come. So we will see you all next episode.